Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. I want to start today's conversation reflecting on the word trauma in terms of the meaning as well as use, which obviously has implications for how we understand the clinical significance and uh, relevance. So it seems to me that the term is very widely used and the experience of trauma is very widely cited as underlying a host of conditions beyond PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been reading uh, Gabo Mate's latest book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And he positions the experience of trauma at the heart of many struggles, some of which rise to the level of disorder. And to some extent, in terms of trauma being understood as a wound resulting from something that happened, for example, an assault, or something that didn't happen, for example, parental neglect or inattention, we could all potentially be traumatized. And I think specifically the latter, which could be more subjective, which brings me to a fundamental concern before one gets into the specific psychiatric consequences. Where is the line in terms of judging an event or situation as traumatic? Or is it simply based on individual experience? It is because I say so. And are we all thus traumatized? So, Joining us for today's episode entitled Trauma and Disorders of Stress, we have Dr. Kerri-Ann Lowe. Kerri-Ann is a consultation liaison psychiatrist and senior lecturer at Stellenbosch University. She's the head of clinical unit of adult psychiatry services at Tigerberg Hospital, and her special interests include, amongst other things, the complex interactions between psychiatric and medical illnesses and chronic pain. So Kerri-Ann, welcome. Nice to have you. And I've got a special guest, Alice. Alice is the other half of the Alice and the Prof project, which includes our Instagram page and website where we share our doctor-patient experiences, and Alice will be commenting on her personal experiences as they relate to the topic and content to be discussed. So, let me kick off with going back to where I started our trauma, and, 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 and what is it? So, you know, Kerri-Ann, without putting you on the spot to come up with a definition, I mean, you know, what's your understanding of, 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 of trauma when you hear the word? So I, I think, um, you know, when we start with, with PTSD trauma, often it's linked to, you know, combat trauma, which is, uh, you know, where things started. But trauma is so pervasive in our communities. And, of course, it's complex trauma. It's often childhood trauma, yes. recurrent trauma, intergenerational trauma. Right. So my understanding and the way I think about trauma has certainly changed a lot in my career. And right. How I think of things. And I think you importantly mentioned trauma through neglect or what is not experienced by people. Yes. So, yeah, I try to think of it a lot more broadly now in terms of these events that really shatter people's sense of security and safety and sense of self within their environment. Yeah, I mean, because for me, the more traditional definition of trauma or one that I came across was a high impact stressor. It overwhelms the individual's ability to cope 
and it disrupts their relationship with self and others. So, I mean, that's a very specific understanding of, of, of trauma. But if I go back to, to, to Gabor Mate and, and, and he, he just speaks about the meaning of the word, where it comes from, from the original Greek, which means wound. Then we're suddenly opening up the, 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 the understanding of, of, of what it means. And, and I think he's really talking about psychic wounds. And he makes a very interesting, he says trauma is something not that happens to you, it happens inside you. And I, I, he, he used the analogy of a motor vehicle accident and concussion. It's like the accident happens to you, but what, you know, what's actually happening is inside you. And I found that to be very interesting in terms of, 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 of analogies. And, and he's, he comes from a very specific position where he's feeling that trauma is pervasive. And somebody who doesn't have trauma is almost like an outlier. And, I, you know, I, I think when we get into those kinds of generalities or generalizations, I, I have a little bit of reserve and reservation about that because I think if everybody's traumatized, then what is trauma? You know, so that's, that's an issue for me. But having said that, the World Health Organization's World Mental Health Surveys say that 70% of the global population report exposure to at least one traumatic event. So, I mean – He's not necessarily wrong in terms of how he might see things because there's data to, to, to suggest that it is pretty pervasive. So what does that really mean in terms of uh, the move from an experience to a consequence? Because not everybody is going to experience these sort of psychiatric consequences. Kerry? Yeah, I suppose what we're saying is is to live is to experience trauma, um, but the the person is the filter through which the traumatic experience passes to manifest either with post traumatic growth, yeah. or potentially with somatic or psychological dysfunction and and impairment potentially. Right. So it's very much an individual thing. And I think that that's really the issue is that it comes down to individual factors which kind of mitigate or promote the uh, progression from an experience of, of, of trauma, however one understands it, to consequence. Alice, you're listening and making notes, I see. So what are your thoughts on, on, on the discussion at this point in terms of trauma? Yeah, definitely. Um when Gambo Mate speaks about the wound and opening up understanding, um, this concept of trauma happening inside you just reminds me very much of a comment that was made to me a few years ago by a therapist, which made such sense where he said, Alice, trauma lives inside your cells. And at that point, um, I really kind of realized that this is something that is infiltrating my whole life not just a psychological part of me, but physical manifestations um, of the trauma that I'd been through. Right. So it's very much in you, part of you. Yeah, absolutely. Is that a nihilistic uh, sentiment where we're saying, well, if it's in you and it's part of you, it can't be dealt with? Or, you know, because if it is very much part of, 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 of your being, how do we move beyond that? How do we get past it in in that sense, it's just a question in my mind because I'm not nihilistic about these things at all, but I'm just wondering. Because Mate also makes that comment, actually, that uh, trauma is very cellular, you know. And I think that uh, when one thinks about it, and not just within the individual, but inter I mean, Kerry, you, you mentioned intergenerational. And intergenerationally, 
that uh, trauma gets passed on without you even realizing it. I don't know what your experience has been, but that's kind of what I, what he's saying, and it makes sense to me intuitively. If one looks at certain communities who've been traumatized over centuries and 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 with various uh, situations, I think if one thinks about the body remembers, and yes. that's you know what Alice is talking about, the cellular experience. It's how we perceive and think about it. I can see that as an empowering experience because okay. it means within is where we can process and manage. And that's right. at a chemical level yes. in terms of our biology, but also in a sense of an, an ownership way of you know, engaging in processes that allow for change and healing. And often the experience of trauma, you are left feeling so disempowered right. and out of control. But the idea that this is now manifesting within me in some way can be seen as a way of taking control over that experiencing experience, sorry, and processing and moving forward. But I, I, I don't know if, if others would feel that way, but I no. see that as a proactive way of thinking about it. No, I think I, I, I like that because at the end of the day, if it's in me, I own it. And if I own it, I can shape it. And therefore I think that it is empowering. So Contrary to what I said a few sentences ago about, you know, being a bit nihilistic or, well, not saying it definitely is, but just raising it, the way in which you've, you've put it now I think makes a lot more sense and I can definitely see that, um, that one can take ownership. Alice? I think um, my comment on this is it points to the fact if you, if you think about trauma going into your cells or, or living with inside, with inside you, um, that it shows how one's body and mind are not silos. You can't you can't separate the one from the other. And if you're thinking about it in in the in the sense of treatment, um, it doesn't live necessarily in one specific place. But it's also really important for for the patient or or the client to realize that in terms of the treatment team, they are as important, if not the most important, in in terms of making that process progress through understanding the process. Yeah, and I think you raised something here that we'll probably touch on. It's, it's this whole body-mind dichotomy. And I think maybe where we work in this area, we come up against the limitation of, of, of thinking of people in that way. And maybe it's one of the limitations of, of, of medicine, actually, that there is that distinction and – as psychiatrists, we certainly come up against it. Um, I have some concerns that I mean that that psychiatry is moving, and that's not a bad thing, but it's becoming increasingly biological. And I'm wondering to what extent we're kind of going to lose that ability to integrate the sort of mind-body and not separate as we become more biological and more physically orientated within the context of being a medical discipline. I think we're a medical discipline that is a little bit different to other medical disciplines, and we need to we need to own that at the end of the day. So I think this whole issue of mind body is a, is, a, is a very important concept and and a potential constraint. I don't know what you think, Kerry, but I mean I'm just thinking about that. No, as you said, I think it's one of the biggest and deepest problems in medicine is mind body dualism, and it creates so many problems. The idea that it's psychological or biological. Intuitively, that's crazy, right? right? All our logical experiences are generated in some way by biology. They, they have to be. They don't come out of thin air. It's created through biological processes. 
And on the other hand, any physical experience will, will lead to a psychological reaction. And it's one of the hardest works, I think, in work in liaison psychiatry is right. unpacking that when a yes. patient may come to you and they've said, oh, this is all in my mind, or I've been told my pain is psychological pain. And, and we have to step back and say, your brain generates all these experiences. Yes, it's in your mind, because everything is in your mind. Yes. But that's, that's not what people mean when they say that. They say it's somehow not real, or it's not as important, or, oh, you must go see a psychiatrist right. or a psychologist. You're not worthy of real medicine. Yes. That's, that's the message people get, which is ridiculous. Well, I think that just coming back to that um, opinion piece that Richard Smith wrote in the British Medical Journal, published in January of this year, actually, where it's, it's actually explicitly stated in, in a quote, every medical problem is a combination of the biological, the psychological, and the social. And I think that that's really important. And I'm not sure that that is fully grasped and understood in the general teaching of medicine. We certainly as psychiatry operate on the basis of a biopsychosocial approach and increasingly now they're bringing in the spiritual as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that even as psychiatrists, we're almost moving more towards the bio and we're sort of forgetting the psychosocial. And I suppose because I sort of came through working a lot in adolescent psychiatry and with eating disorders, I was kind of the other way around. I was more psychosocial bio. And I think that it always concerned me that the psychosocial aspects were not fully um, explored. And I found myself always saying to, 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 to registrars, trainees, colleagues, context. I need to understand the context of this person's presentation where do they come from? Who are they? Are they married? Are they single? Are they unemployed? Where do they live? What was their history before they got here? Context is so important, and I think the psychosocial issues are critical. And I think in these, as we, the, the area we're going to move into, those are critical. I mean, a, a, a really thorough history and understanding to, to, to get the context of why did this person present to me with this particular symptom at this point? How did they get to me? And so for me, it all starts with a really good history taking, but I think an openness to, to, to actually saying, okay, I need to explore this because I can't explain it in one way, but there must be an explanation and the person is in front of me. So I think that as medical practitioners, as psychiatrists, we need to be open to that. Kerry, and then I'll bring Alice in. I agree. And I think the biological strengthening of psychiatry really should rather be seen as, as something that will complement our holistic view. Right. So I think it can empower the kinds of conversations we have with patients. Again, every patient is going to be different, but some patients might be really empowered by a biological conversation around trauma and how it might explain somatic experiences without taking away from the psychological at all. And another comment I wanted to make is we have these big evidence-based interventions biologically, yes. but not good evidence-based psychosocial. Mm. And a simple example might be a third or fourth line antiretroviral treatment, but have we engaged in anything evidence-based to improve adherence or to deal with this person's psychological factors, which yes. might on that condition. Yes, and here we're talking about HIV, obviously AIDS. And so absolutely, because at the end of the day, I think if you're working with one aspect, you're missing the big picture. And if you don't see the big picture, how can you actually implement a meaningful and comprehensive package of care? 
And I think that's often the difficulty and the frustration for the clinician and the patient. And I think that, uh, Alice, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just, you know, during this conversation, thinking about an experience I most recently had mm. um, when I was admitted uh, under a neurologist to the epilepsy monitoring unit, not for epilepsy, but for other neurological reasons. And so I had five days wired to a wall, which gives a lot of time to think. Um, and I'd written a, a couple of sentences when I was in there that at the end of the week, I had an acute awareness of the smash point between nerves and trauma, admitted to a neurological unit for neurological symptoms, but forced to deal with trauma all day can make it confusing to find bearings about where to go. Aside from my psychological mind, my wiring was always off, and it was that which bore the brunt of the assaults. So from from birth, I've had various sensory difficulties, but the trauma that I experienced was a sensory violence. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really important for me what Kerry and said um, at the beginning, how trauma can really impact your security and safety of your environment and therefore the psychosocial you know, element of your world. And so again, it's can you even make a distinction between the two? Mm. I think that's fair enough. I wanted to just shift slightly to another word that's frequently used, which is stress, because stress forms part of this conversation. And I mean, obviously, you know, stress – is about challenging and changing circumstances and their various aspects linked to stress, uncertainty, conflict, lack of control, lack of information. But I think that, uh, again, everything is attributed to, to stress. There, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a catchword. And so it's my usual concern when a word is so frequently used. Eventually, what does it, does it mean? But certainly it's a reality of contemporary society. And I think a lot of people feel very stressed. But I think that what we're going to get to in terms of somatic representations of trauma or psychic insults have a lot more to do with distress than stress. These are not just as a consequence of stress. What would your thoughts be on that, uh, Kerry? I think if we conceptualize stress as anything that threatens our homeostasis, right. I find that helpful because it's again around perception and threshold and that the person being the, the, the conduit or the, the being through which this experience flows. And again, what will be internalized, what will be externalized is really very much about that person and their, their context. But of course, trauma leads to stress. I mean, Alice has just beautifully explained this experience of coming into a medical setting and that's stressful and there's more trauma. So People who've experienced childhood trauma and, and adulthood trauma are going to be more at risk for, for more stress, right. more exposure to chronic stress biologically, psychologically. So I think it's difficult to pull those things apart. But yes, I mean, stress is so pervasive. And I think we language is so powerful. Sorry, I think that's where you started. Yes. You know, it becomes so powerful when we take ownership in a society, in a community. And somehow COVID has shifted our language around these things and given some people a voice around experiences because everybody felt stress. So yes. you had a whole global experience of stress and it's allowed people to maybe speak a little bit more comfortably around that. And I hear what you're saying. You don't want the word to necessarily lose its weight and its importance, but I also think it's good that it's opened up an ability for people at a mass level to 
talk about the impact of what's going on in our environment and, and our world and how that impacts our experience. You know, what was interesting about the whole COVID experience was the fact that we were all impacted. So suddenly there was a level playing field. So when a patient walked into my consulting room, it wasn't though I was listening to something which was happening out there to them. It was happening to all of us. And so there was that uh, sense of, of, of coming together. I don't know to what extent that's continued to be the case, but certainly under those circumstances, you could relate more directly to what a person was talking about because it was impacting you as well. And, you know, when I speak about stress as a function of uncertainty and lack of information, I mean, these were all of the kind of situations that were operating at that time. And I think that... Yeah, it was really interesting for me, certainly as a psychiatrist, as a therapist, listening to patients and saying, you know, in this instance, we're all on the same page here. We are all battling together. And there was that sense of, 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 of coming together. But there are two things you said, which are, which I want to pick up on in relation to stress, the issue of perception and the issue of threshold and how individual it is. And I think that, you know, we, we, we are in an era where everything has got to be objective. And it's got to be evidence-based. And so, therefore, if it falls outside of that, what is it? But what you're saying, actually, or, or how I would interpret that, and, and, and I believe that, is that you've got to listen to the individual. Because an individual, I mean, I always say there's statistics and then there's people. And I think that you're always looking at the person holistically and saying, well, that's their experience. And their tolerance threshold or their ability to, to, to deal with things is at a certain level. And so my expectations of how I would deal with that or how the average might deal with that, that's one aspect. Now I've got to come back to the individual. So I think that the issue of perception threshold and how it relates to the individual is actually so, so critical. And I do think in contemporary medicine, that's difficult because everything must be measurable. Everything must fit within a range. And if you're sort of not there, then what are you? And so that's where I have concerns about these kinds of situations where you have to be very open-minded in that sense and say, well, yes, there's the norm and there's the average and there's the expectations, but then there's the individual. And how are they experiencing stress and what is the threshold and what is the impact on them? But if we flip it now to our friend or enemy for some people, the DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth version. In fact, there's the text revision. It's actually evolved already. It hasn't taken long, and we've got the text revision. So, I mean, obviously within the context of DSM-5, if you think of, of, of trauma and stress-related disorders, there's what I would call the sort of big two, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. That's like the big one, and then there's uh, acute stress disorder. And so I think that, you know, we can't have this discussion without making reference to them. But within the context of post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and obviously we're going to do a deeper dive into PTSD as a separate episode, but I think that there you're looking at the kind of trauma that speaks to the definition that I gave earlier, where we're looking at actual or threatened death, um, serious injury, sexual violence, and either it was experienced, witnessed, or learned of, or you had exposure to the details. But what I think is quite interesting is when I look at the symptoms, and, and basically acute and post-traumatic stress have a similar s symptom set. It's, it's really got to do with duration of symptoms that kind of differentiates the one from the other, less than a month or, or more than a month, acute being less than, post-traumatic being 
more than are the are the dissociative phenomena that one sees in post-traumatic stress disorder from the feelings of detachment to dissociative reactions like flashbacks and the fact that you actually have to categorize PTSD with or without dissociative symptoms. That's a, that's a specifier which speaks to depersonalization and derealization. Kerry, your, your, your thoughts on that, but it kind of jumps out at me when I sort of looked at the symptoms in terms of what we were talking about. I thought, hmm, there's a lot of dissociation in post-traumatic stress disorder. Your thoughts? I, I think that's an important observation, and it's also important when we think about things like chronic pain or functional syndromes yes. and uh, functional neurological syndromes, because there is that link to dissociation. So it's it's one of the potential explanatory pathways in terms of how trauma and then PTSD can lead to somatic experiences. So I think that's an important observation. But if you look at the criteria, there are actually a lot of physical symptoms, yes. you know, sleep and hypervigilance, physical reactions or physiological reactions to trauma cues, concentration, startle response. So there are a lot of biological symptoms in yes. PTSD, again, when we think about that link to functional disorders or to somatic experience. It's very physical. And I mean, in the same way that depression is very physical. I mean, depression is a very physical illness. The fatigue, the sleep, the libido, the appetite, the energy, concentration issues. So, I mean, actually psychiatric, when you actually go into psychiatric illness and you look at the symptoms, it's, it's very physical, actually. And, and, and so this distinction between mind and body, you know, once again, we kind of look at the actual symptomatology and say, well, you can't just, it's either mind or it's either body. It's very integrated, but I, Specifically wanted to sort of extract the dissociative uh, uh, phenomena because I think that's something that we're going to, to look at. But I think what is interesting about ASD, acute stress disorder, and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is that, you know, psychiatry is often seen as a, as a discipline where there are no etiologies. There are no causative, apparent causative factors like what causes schizophrenia, what causes bipolar. But here we have actual causative factors that we can go to and say, well, this happened and that's a consequence. And so these are a bunch of conditions that actually do speak to to um, etiology. But obviously, you know, from the experiencing of a trauma to the actual development of uh, a, a diagnosable condition, it's a very small percentage actually from what I, you know, understand and from what I see. And so obviously there are – coming back to something you'd said earlier, Kerry, about the individual there are individual factors, and I think that that's very important. Alice, did you want to comment? Um, I'm just thinking about uh, the part of the conversation where you're speaking about dissociation and how you know significant that's been in my life. And it's something you can live with um, and be completely functional with, but it detaches you from your experience of the world um, and just how it can grow within you so that was something that, um, you know, my my mind learned to do as a 10-year-old watching my father die. But as time went on and I experienced other traumas became more and more prevalent and in itself could become a trigger for, for the experience of physiological pain. Um, so it really becomes this ca like cascading of experience after these traumatic events that in itself can precipitate more trauma. Right. And I think for me, the sort of, if, if I think of dissociation as a phenomenon, I think of disconnection. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's a, 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 a much more accessible, you know, because dissociation can get very technical, but I think it's that disconnection. So, Kerian, I want to move to somatic symptom and related disorders because I think that this is where we're kind of moving towards the somatic representations and, and, and what's the meaning of, of, of the somatic symptom. And you've, you've touched on chronic pain. What's interesting with DSM-5, of course, it's, it's, it, it makes no reference to etiology. It's all just about symptoms and a minimum number of symptoms gives you a diagnosis. So there's no mention of, of, of etiology at all. But just coming to chronic pain, I mean, I see people with pain and, I think it's one of the most debilitating of circumstances to live with chronic pain. It kind of is so erosive. It eats you, I think. And I don't know that if, if one doesn't have pain, you can fully grasp just how erosive it, it, it can be. It hard impacts on everything from sleep to mood to interpersonal re- relationships because of irritability and, and, and distractibility because of the pain. So, Kerry-Ann, you obviously have a specific interest in, in, in chronic pain. And, and, and maybe, you know, I'm, I'm making some comments without being, you know, immersed in, in, in working in, in that area. Um, your thoughts? I think pain is probably, for me, the best example of where mind-body dualism has done so much damage because we still talk about there's real pain and there's psychological pain and, you know, this is, as we said, in the person's mind or it's supratentorial, these ways we have. But the reality is is pain is a brain-generated experience. It is a threat system, actually. It's not a nociceptive system. You can have tissue damage and your nociceptors can fire and you can feel no pain. Right. I often the example of the sportsman who's injured and plays the match without feeling any pain. Right. And right. you can have absolutely no tissue damage but experience pain. And something like migraine is a good example of that. The person is in intense pain experience, but there's no tissue damage. Right. And then, of course, there are things like heartache and you spoke about depression how that's such a physical experience those are pain experiences it's the same anatomical areas it's the same neurotransmitters so the idea that pain is equal to tissue damage is really unhelpful and what happens in chronic pain sufferers regardless of etiology is that it's not often visible because by the time it's chronic pain the tissues have healed it can't be seen so as you said it's a very lonely journey You've lost relationships, your job, your identity, your sense of self, and it becomes a very consuming experience. So you could argue when you look at the the criteria for somatic symptom disorder, which is problematic thoughts, feelings, and behaviors essentially about a somatic experience regardless of etiology, anyone with chronic pain would probably meet those criteria because it's awful. Hmm. Uh, And you're going to have difficult thoughts, feelings, and behaviors because you live with chronic pain. I think that the point you made, though, around physical damage, I, I remember coming across, uh, it was in Dan Stain's book on um, difficulties of, 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 well, that's not the title. The title escapes me now. But there was a, a, a specific um, reference to the pain of social exclusion actually lighting up areas of the brain that were very similar to tra- trauma. And so the point being made was that it's very real. Uh, 
and it impacts you at a biological level. So psychic pain is not some nebulous concept that is not real pain. In fact, biologically, it's doing the same thing. And I think that that's a, that's a really difficult concept to, to grasp that, that, that psychic pain can actually be experienced. And so when we speak about chronic pain, but you can't really find a source, I think one has to look a little deeper and go beyond and to appreciate that, yeah, not everything that is painful can be seen and it's not always physical damage. And I think that's very important. And just bringing together the, the issue of trauma, it seems that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is kind of like the sort of vehicle from trauma to pain, that there's a relationship between trauma, PTSD, and pain. What are your, what are your thoughts on that, Karianne? Yes, but not always. Right. So there definitely is a pathway. So trauma to PTSD to pain and thrown in the mix there might be depression and substance use uh, in that middle part of the journey. But you can also have trauma and go straight to pain without PTSD. So right. we know that traumatic experiences are associated with an increased risk of somatic complaints regardless of the PTSD, but PTSD is one of the pathways and a strong association when you look at studies that have tried to piece together explanatory models, which are also always crazy, complicated right. things we're talking about. Um, so not everybody, certainly anecdotally, but also if we look at the literature with pain, will have PTSD, um, but you get many people with trauma going directly to the pain. And obviously the trauma itself can cause the injury that yes. leads to the pain, but that trauma experience is going to affect your biology in terms of avoidance behaviors, right. potentially, um, you know, your sympathetic nervous system, HPA axis, etc. All of those systems can be disrupted by a trauma experience. And of course, if you have PTSD on top of that, one of the models is that it's sort of mutually reinforcing right. of, of the symptomatology. Yes, because I, I mean, my understanding would be that pain is is, is not an uncommon uh, uh, association with PTSD, and I think, but it doesn't work the other way. Just because you've got pain doesn't mean that you've got PTSD. So I think one has to be very careful there. The other condition which I find fascinating, and I think is one of the more frustrating conditions, not just to psychiatrists but to neurologists specifically, is what we call conversion disorder, or also called functional neurological symptom. Disorder, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm thinking back to 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 my days as a as a as a trainee and and doing neurology, and there being a patient diagnosed with conversion disorder in the neurology ward, and and just seeing the frustration that the neurologists experience, and also the expectation that if it's not neurological, it's got to be psychiatric, fix it. And I think that that is, is, is it's, it's actually quite a stigmatizing condition. I think that uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, antipathy towards a sufferer, but I think I've chosen the word sufferer specifically because there's distress, and I think that that is very important in terms of understanding conversion disorder, and very often, there may be other issues, but there has been a trauma or there is a trauma. So what are your thoughts on, on, on that? And I know Alice has got some thoughts on this whole use of the word functional. So I think this is one of the areas where biology is actually serving us. Right. Because there's certainly a move for neurology to take more ownership of 
functional neurological symptom disorder or conversion disorder. Yes. And that it, it's a positive diagnosis. And again, when we think biologically, when you do functional imaging studies, there's a difference between a malingerer right. and somebody with a functional neurological symptom disorder and somebody with, you know, a real biological, um, you know, pathology illness. Yes. When you look at the malingerer's brain, nothing lights up. The person with the functional neurological symptom, the correct areas are lighting up in terms of the pre-motor, but it's not translating into movement. Right. So I think it's a, a nice, exciting way to think biologically. And the brain is always generating experience based on the information it has. It has to guess, right? So right. if the brain, for whatever reason, believes based on information it receives that it cannot move the leg, it's not going to move the leg. Right. If, and that might be trauma-related. It might be based on attention. It can be social learning. All of those things will create the brain's ability to generate movement. And that's why we think about it as functional. So there's no damage to the nerve pathways. Your nerve conduction is normal. But functionally, that pathway is not working. I think, I, I think that's critical because I think you've really explained the, the use of the word functional. Sorry, so I just interrupted you there. But, I mean, it just struck me. I thought, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. Because I think people struggle with this idea of functional, meaning, oh, there's no problem. But actually, no, you're saying, no, of course there's a problem. You don't function. Therefore, it's functional, but you don't necessarily see a, a, an overt pathology. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to explain it, actually. And we used to teach that hardware, software, yes. computer, which I think is already maybe a little bit out of date. So I often use the cell phone because most patients, well, I've had experience with the smartphone. And everybody's had that experience where you know, the battery's low or the app is outdated and it just doesn't work. Yes. And then you say that you don't need a new phone. You just need to update the software of the phone or download the latest version of the app and then it will work. And I find that more helpful talking right. to people about it. And that's why the physio interventions are so great. Yes. Because you just read, and there's very specific physio for functional neurological problems. Um, and, you're just retraining the pathways because they're there. The pathway is intact, but signaling is a problem. Right. So we just need to retrain that pathway, and then we will hopefully see improvement of the symptom. So I just need to be clear so that people understand. The conversion disorder is where there's a loss of motor or sensory function, and it doesn't necessarily fit with any recognized uh, uh, illness or disease. And I think that's where the frustration comes in because it doesn't fit and I think this is one of the issues we have where something doesn't fit, what is it? And then it gets kind of moved and that's where the stigma comes in. The one thing I do want to say though about conversion disorder is that very often the patients turn out to have an actual organic pathology which only manifests down the line. I don't know what your experience has been, but certainly that's what the literature is suggesting. So whenever people jump to the diagnosis of conversion disorder, I'm always inclined to say just be careful because there may well be something going on that you haven't either fully understood or it hasn't revealed itself more fully beyond what we're seeing now? I think it's less of an issue with medical advances in imaging right. techniques. There are obviously things, stiff person syndrome, yes. LEMS, those kinds of conditions, but the rates of missing something serious by a neurologist yes. are, are lower. Yes. So if you end up 
and, and it really should be a neurological diagnosis. I think that's really important. It's not about saying, oh, look, your CT scan is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Go to a psychiatrist. You need a neurologist or a neuropsychiatrist or psychiatrist with good neurological skills. Yes. Examine that patient and, and show them, when I do the test this way, like a Hoover's sign or an adductor sign, look, I, your leg is not moving. When we do it another way, it does. And that inconsistency shows me, again, your pathway is there, but it's not functioning properly. We need to help your brain to, to rework this pathway or re-strengthen whatever words you want to use because the functioning is, is not good at this point. But look, we can see it does work when we do the sign the other way. Right. So, so the way in which you're explaining to me suggests a really – meaningful conversation with the patient. And I think that my question is to what extent that actually happens as you're explaining it, because as you're explaining it, there's also a therapeutic component to that because you're really explaining to the patient what is going on, what might be possible. So you're not just saying, look, I can't find a cause. I don't think there's anything wrong with you from my perspective. Uh, maybe you need to see a psychiatrist, which I think it's very difficult for the patient because they've come in with something physical and now they're being told, oh, no, it's all in your mind um, and you need to move elsewhere. And I, I think there's resistance from that perspective, understandably, but the way in which you're describing it really sounds like the kind of conversation that one should be having with a patient to really explain it in a, not in a negative way, actually, but in a positive way where you're saying, well, listen, there's possibility here. We're seeing that there is um, the possibility of, 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 of function. We just need to work towards achieving that. That's how I would understand what, what you've said. And, and, and it's something that I think neurologists should be uh, thinking about, but don't, not just neurologists because psychiatrists, I think, are not particularly fond of conversion disorder or functional neurological uh, uh, symptom disorder either, in my experience. Alice, your thoughts on what we've been saying now? Yeah, functional um, neurological disorder and F&D is definitely something, it's a, it's a conversation that is heavily involved in my experience. And, you know, the, the explanation about this being a pathway that's not working is, is very useful. I think as well, um, you know, it, it highlights that there are various parts of a person that are involved. And so you, you can't silo a person. And when a physiotherapist or those kind of um, practitioners are involved, it becomes really useful because if there is an underlying organic problem, those kind of interventions, particularly in my case, a tactile intervention, um, is helpful to see, okay, where is this um, FND and at which point does it become a biological um uh, set of symptoms and to be able to delineate that and to realize, okay, this is, you know, something that I was born with. And so I got necessarily fight it in terms of treatment by a physio, but I can make, you know, great progress using this treatment modality together with a neurologist is, is very, very useful, but none of that would have happened without, as you were speaking, um, a useful conversation. And I think, you know, in, in our joint project, we ran a very non-scientific poll of Alice and the prof, speaking about trust, really. And it was quite interesting to see that of um, not an insignificant uh, amount of people who replied, 
the one thing that came out as a 55% um, answer to the biggest contributor of trust was active listening and understanding. And it was only 6% that answered competence. And really, as a patient, you need whoever is treating you to actively listen. And after that, you're going to be able to view them as com competent and therefore be more open to their explanation of of what may be going on um, and be more open to the fact that, you know, if you're having a functional neurological disorder explained to you, be a lot less defensive about this concept, maybe feeling that it's just in your mind where, you know, your practitioners are really not saying that. Um, so that active listening and converting that into a feeling of competence with the person who's treating you, I think is really, really essential for something that is, uh, I think, in many ways quite abstract to understand. Mm. Um, so in my experience, you know, that's, that's how it's, you know, played out for me. But I think the word abstract is important because, again, we're sort of coming away from the concrete where I can say, right, that's what it is, versus the abstract, which is, well, I can't, in terms of my investigations, find exactly. However, there is something going on. It's functional, and we need to work towards that. In 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 your work, Kerryanne, I mean, do do you ever get to? Because I mean, the the issue of conversion disorder or, or functional neurological symptom disorder does come with another specifier, which is with psychological stressor or without psychological stressor. To what extent do patients who manifest do they link what they experience with the psychological stressor and even mention it? You know, because it's 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 almost as if well we we it would just be there. Yes, there was a psychological stressor and then this happened. I'm not sure that in my experience of conversion disorder that there's any overt acknowledgement from the patient with the conversion disorder of a psychological stressor. Sometimes there's a very clear temporal relationship, particularly in an acute setting. So in a medical emergency department where somebody's come in, there may have been, or often we do see in that setting, a very clear identifiable moment that you can unpack with a person, that's easier. It's harder in the chronic context. And, of course, you don't need a psychological stressor for diagnosis either, which sure. I think is a good step forward. Yes. But it is often harder for people to, again, link the mind and body, because this is another beautiful example of mind-body dualism. Yes. And our way of thinking in medicine, which makes I think many patients feel anxious to acknowledge a psychological issue when they think they may then not be taken seriously. Right. I think I've, you know, I've my, let's just say whatever experience I've had a stroke, I might be very scared to say to the doctor, well, I'm also grieving the loss of my husband because mm. maybe then they're not going to do the tests, which is, as you know, a reality. Yes. We've all seen that with the, the patient with TB meningitis, you know, oh, they, they go, they're, or student has exams and they've come in with a complaint, it must be stress, and then you miss something terrible. So right. it's not, I think, an unwarranted fear that people have, that if I acknowledge something psychological, I may not be taken seriously. And that's what we're talking about, right, is that conversation where somebody is really listening to you. Yes. And should we be going there as treating specialists, given the presentation where we're saying, hmm, I wonder what else is going on here and how far do we go and is the patient ready to actually go there? 
because I think we might have an idea and understanding that there's something else going on here and we need to get to that um, as a as a potential key. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's not always the key that, that, that picks the lock um, getting there. But if one has a sense, should it be something that we we pursue more actively or do we kind of tread carefully because patients are often very defended to go there? I agree with that. Any somatic complaint, if I start talking about your childhood trauma before right. I've taken that complaint seriously, I've yes. lost it. Right. And that's why I like bringing everything together to say anybody who has any biological experience, there are psychological factors that are important. But before I go there, let's talk about this complaint. Even if it's nausea or GIT issues, when did it start? What makes it better? You know, start with that first. And we know for the functional neurological symptom disorder, the first treatment step is the conversation, yeah. which is what you and Alice have been saying. That is the first step because if you don't have buy-in, yes. whether or not I'm going to suggest physio or psychotherapy, it's lost. So your first treatment step is a positive explanation of what's going on, helping the person to understand it. And then if you can get through that step, then, of course, it naturally flows into, well, why maybe CBT or physio, whatever else we're offering, is going to be helpful for you. Right. And then once you've got that rapport and that process and hopefully with physical therapy, some restoration of function, then of course it's going to be a mistake not to go there with the trauma if it's part of the etiology and your formulation of the patient because that creates the stuckness or the difficulty potentially around expressing emotions which might create that vulnerability to somatic amplification yes. when functional symptoms. I think it's often very difficult for the patients because once you want to go there, you're really opening things up. And obviously one has to be ready for that. And so one has to prepare the sort of ground to get there. And so it's a process. And I think that's what's very important is that one is operating with an understanding as a as a clinician, but you're also operating with the understanding that it is a process and you've got to move very cautiously and very carefully into that so that the patient will ultimately allow you in. The question is, of course, if one gets there, do we then start to see that patients let go of certain of their somatic complaints and they start to move beyond that um, as part of their progress? You know, these are... Uh, it's a difficult one. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be dismissive of the chronicity challenge. Of yes. That. But yes, I think the more empowered people are in how they can understand their mind-body link, yes. the better... And I mean, I like the, the concept of letting go, but also it's letting go is not only a psychological process, it's a biological process. Right. So at the cellular level, which is where our conversation started, started yeah. you might see those changes as well. So maybe let's look at something like avoidance behavior. Mm. If I'm avoiding certain movements because I have beliefs that are not helpful, if you can challenge and change those beliefs and I start moving, there's going to be a change in my pain or, or right. other somatic experience. So I want to say, yes, that, that letting go is a helpful healing process, but we must also remember the biological changes and lifestyle changes that come with healthier psychological engagement with our bodies. 
And I just to want to clarify CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. So that's a form of, of, of psychotherapy. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm always inclined to not just look at what the person can't do, but what they can do. And I think that that is very important as well, because I think that is empowering. I think that often, you know, not being able to do kind of clouds everything. And then one becomes chronically dysfunctional if, 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 if one is not careful. So I think there is a, 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 a way of moving away from the, the, the dysfunctionality by trying to establish what is functional in the individual. Alice, you've been listening. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, um, you know, the, the conversation aspect of this and the concept of active listening and how it works both ways, um, between doctor and patient. Both need to actively listen to each other. Um, and I think a doctor can, you know, set an example of how to do it. But the patient equally needs to be able to actively listen to, to what that doctor is saying. And in this process, I think it's really important for a patient to be able to start to see how they can restory their own experience. And through that, start to understand it better, start to maybe take more control because they're changing the narrative within their head. Um, and I think most patients are going to need guidance to be able to do that, but it's definitely possible and and I think very useful. Yes. You mentioned narrative, and I think it's about making sense of what has happened, the journey that one has taken, and restructuring that in a way that is coherent and empowering in a sense, where you, as you say, you restory your story. I didn't touch on because we're sort of coming to the end of our time, borderline personality disorder or what some people would call complex trauma disorder, the dissociative disorders, which is a whole discussion in and of itself. Um, and so there are many other potential psychiatric consequences of trauma. And I think today we focused on the physical and I think that's very important. And I think we've kind of touched on something fundamental in the doctor patient relationship, which is the conversation, the listening and the working together actually between clinician and, uh, and patient. So I want to thank both of you for taking the time to, to, to join us today and, and, and to share of your knowledge and experience. And, and in closing, I'm going to touch on a few um, observations from Gabor Mate, certainly in his book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, where he writes about a more trauma-conscious society and a more trauma-informed medical profession, which I think is important. And to close, a few words from Jordan Peterson. He's Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, and he's got a chapter on old memories that I thought was relevant. He's obviously very direct in his sentiments, but he says the following, It is our destiny to transform chaos into order. If the past has not been ordered, the chaos it still constitutes haunts us, and we have every reason to avoid facing the bitter truth, but making what is and what was clear and fully comprehended can only protect us. So, with those words, again, thank you to both of my guests, and uh, that's it. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.